Hi, Andrew Talks to Chefs listeners. My new book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food, is now on sale. Publishers Weekly calls it masterful, and Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, an entertaining, eye-opening investigation. Follow the link in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you followed us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And if you'd like to rate or review us and help new listeners find the pod, the best place for that is Apple Podcast. Thank you very much. Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. Enjoy the show. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. From chefs to mixologists, if you manage recipes for professional kitchens, Mies was built to make your pro kitchen life easier. Store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. Get started by visiting getmes.com forward slash Andrew. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. service is going to start soon. I'm like, I don't want to lose this job. So I just booked it out of the kitchen. I ran all the way to JB Prince, (laughs) took the elevator all the way upstairs, grabbed as many squeeze bottles I could afford at the time. And then with what cash I had left, I took a cab. I made it back just in time, filled all those squeeze bottles up. No one blinked an eye or even said anything to me, but I knew like, I'm in this, like, this is, this is for me. Like, I, I love this. That is the voice of Rob Ruba, chef, and owner of Oyster Oyster in Washington, D.C., and recipient of this year's James Beard Foundation Award for Outstanding Chef. Rob is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and I am here to beg your forgiveness. I am terribly sorry to have vanished on all of you for the last few weeks. As you know, if you've listened to this show before, or even if you listen to this particular episode from the very top, my new book, The Dish, just published. It published on October 17th, and It has been a very successful public relations effort. Uh, 
Uh, I don't want to name her because I don't want to embarrass her, but I've been blessed with a terrific in-house publicist at HarperCollins uh, for The Dish, and I have been traveling around the country hawking it to anybody who will listen. We've had a wonderful uh couple of weeks here. We had a launch party in Chicago, thanks to my good friend Kevin Bame and his team at Beyond. I did my first ever live television segment on WGN Midday News in Chicago. I uh, had a wonderful event with Chef Brad Kilgore and the team at Marigold's in the Arlo Hotel in the Wynwood neighborhood of my hometown of Miami. I was at the LA Chef Conference last week with the wonderful team from Now Serving Bookstore and at Books Inc. in San Francisco. And next week, if you're in New York City, I will be at PT Knitwear, despite the name that is actually a bookstore podcast studio and cafe that is in Lower Manhattan. And I will be in conversation with my old friend Amanda Hesser on Tuesday, November 14th at 7 p.m. And then on Thursday, November 16th, in Houston, Texas, the team at Bluedorn, my dear friend Aaron Bluedorn's restaurant there, will be staging a Meet the Author lunch. And on Friday, November 17th, I will be at Kendall College in Chicago. I am getting exhausted just listing all these things. Uh, I hope to see you somewhere in there. And links for those events that are open to the public are featured in the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And before I go into introducing our guest, Rob Ruba, I need to ask you, as we do here each week, have you checked out Mies yet? And if not, what in the world are you waiting for? I actually have now started receiving DMs from listeners to the show who have gotten in touch with Mies and had a demo and have now implemented it in their businesses. They are all very happy customers. Mies is the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. If you're wondering what that means, well, it is a place for you to house all of your recipes, to adjust them as necessary, to share them with your team, along with instructional photos and videos, if you like, and also to scale them and derive whatever information you may need to extract from them. Food costs, allergen data, yield loss, unit conversions, nutritional breakdowns, whatever it may be. If you are a chef, line cook, mixologist, operator, or in any way manage recipes for professionals' kitchens, Mies was created just for you by a former chef and restaurateur, that former chef and restaurateur is my friend Josh Sharkey, and I am telling you, he and his team have created something very special and very necessary for the industry. And Mies, the basic version, is free for the entire culinary industry. You can store and organize your recipes with the most advanced recipe scaling technology on the planet. And if you upgrade to premium, you can let Mies make your entire business more efficient and centralized. Train and onboard team members, manage production, and even process invoices. And as a listener to Andrew Talks to Chefs, receive 25 free recipe uploads and breakdowns on your new Mies account by signing up today. Learn more at Get Mies. That's G E T. 
M-E-E-Z.com forward slash Andrew. Head over there on your own or simply click through via the link on the episode description page for today's show. So our guest today is Rob Ruba. And Rob's had a big couple of years. He had a huge summer. He was awarded the James Beard Foundation Award for Outstanding Chef. And that is shorthand for Outstanding Chef in the Nation. The foundation gives regional awards. uh, And then there's kind of the big one, which is Outstanding Chef. Uh, Rob won that award this year for his work at Oyster Oyster in Washington, D.C. The year prior, he was named a Food & Wine Best New Chef. I'm telling you, he's on a bit of a roll. Um, Before he'd won either of those awards, just so you know, uh, you know, I didn't just move in on him uh, when he became uh, kind of uh, a a darling of the uh, award circuit. Uh, Rob and I have been trying to make this interview happen for actually a couple of pandemic riddled years. Uh, We'd been we'd been DMing and whatnot, and we finally pulled it off this summer, just a few few weeks after he won the Beard Award in Chicago. Uh, Marcus Glocker, for whom Rob once cooked, uh, was kind enough to let us borrow the upstairs space at Coloman Restaurant in New York City. Uh, and that is where we conducted this interview. And as you will learn, Rob is a chef who's been on a bit of a personal journey in terms of what he eats, how he runs his business, how he tries to respect the planet and his own body. And all of that has shaped the oyster oyster experience, which clearly is resonating uh, with quite a few people out there. And we will get into all of that along with Rob's early backstory and how he started uh, cooking and all of that in just a moment. As always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino, whether in life or on the plate, Every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Rob Ruba. Here you Good to be here with you. We've we've said hello a couple of times, always in places where you're winning things. Yeah. Uh, We first met, I think, at the Food and Wine Best New Chefs. Correct. At the City Winery in Chelsea. That was last year, I think, in the Mm -hmm. spring, a little over a year ago. And then we saw each other right after you won the the big award at the Beards, wherein I asked you if you were going to cancel your appearance on the show because you've become too big time. But I feel like this has been in the works forever. We, We were messaging during the plague. Yeah, basically. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. And then I went back to my in-person policy, um, but we finally managed to be in the same place at the same time when you had a free hour and I had my gear. So you're here in New York. Why don't you, before we get into all of it, what are you doing here in New York? I am here in New York to talk to you. That's why you're here? Yeah. No. No, that's it. Oh, really? I discourage that. It always leads to disappointment. No, um, it's also to eat some good food. Yes. And- and with everything you've just said about a lot of the accolades and stuff that come around, it's just like a day for myself to kind of just melt away and uh, just kind of 
be in the quiet for a little bit, I think is what I'm trying to achieve today. Is your restaurant closed on Monday? Yes, they are. Okay, so we are here on a Monday. Yes. So that makes it easier. Yeah, no one's working in the kitchen, so I can come Got it. That's why you're able to put your phone in airplane (laughs) mode for this. Before we get to your backstory, let's talk about it for just a minute. I mean, you that you won the you won the big award at the Beards. I mean, the one that most chefs think of is you yeah. want outstanding chef. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty wild one. I'm still processing it. It's one of those things you look up to for a long time as a cook and then a young chef. And then to hear your name called, I'm just it's only been like a little over a month. It's pretty real. It's like wild right now. But yeah. was that like a, I mean, was that like a top 10 lifetime moment for you? How, how big a deal was that for you at the, you know, it's. 2023 there's more awards than there used to be but that's still kind of considered sort of the you know that's kind of the prize pig no i I, i'd agree um it's very much associated with just like kind of united states and our our chef community and it's uh really identifying individuals and it's something i looked up to for a long time so top 10 like a hundred percent like it's pretty unreal i had a speech prepared just in case i didn't really know if i was going to go up or not and then i went up and that speech was just like gone gone in the wind i had oh it was prepared you mean in your head i had one and then i was just like so nervous yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i get it I mean, I'll never forget years ago. I think they tied Paul Kahan and David Chang. And yeah. David, I mean, David's not known as someone lacking in confidence, but mm-hmm. I think at one point he like reached out and he had to like hang on to Paul. Like he was so freaked out, you know, yeah. um, like this global figure. Uh, in any event, uh, I want to, there's a lot of twists and turns in your still young career, um, but let's, let's go all the way back. You are, you're a Jersey boy. I am a Jersey boy. Yeah. Where in New Jersey did you grow up? I grew up right outside of Ocean City, New Jersey, in a little town called Northfield. Okay. Um, yeah, I spent my life there until about 18 years old. And what was uh, a childhood like there? Uh, it's pretty chill. It's cool. We're right by the beach. It's kind of like a bay town. So in the summers, you're on the beach every day. In the in the fall and winter, you're probably playing in the woods. We're very close to the Pinelands too. So it's very outdoorsy. Um, not much else to do. So it's like music and skateboarding are kind of the only other things that were outlets besides nature for me there. Um, but yeah, pretty chill. And you were in harmony with that kind of a setting? Like you took to all of that? Like you were athletic, you enjoyed the outdoors. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You didn't yeah. feel constrained by all that. No, I, I think I enjoyed it. Probably not as much as some of my family members. They're like pretty avid hunters and anglers and stuff. And like I kind of shied away from that a little little bit when I was younger, but mm-hmm. now I'm kind of more interested into it. But we'll see. And f- how did food figure into your, your young life, your family life, if at all? It, food wasn't really that, that big. Like we ate dinner every night at the table, you know, something was always cooked. We didn't go out to restaurants much. The most magical experiences were holidays. You know, it was like a Thanksgiving or a Christmas dinner. Someone would prepare their special dish and it was like wow this is like when we feast this is when we eat and like going to a a restaurant would be like a special occasion would be like the olive garden or something along the lines of that we wouldn't really venture out too much nothing wrong with that yeah i mean that is that is that is the majority of people probably in anywhere you know whatever the equivalent of that is right at what point do you start getting interested in doing what it is that you do now um it was after attempting art school the second time i uh 
my parents suggested I go work with my uncle who was a chef in Connecticut. This was at the Mohegan Sun? At the Mohegan Sun yep. Casino and Resort. <laughs> and uh, I went to the pastry program and I immediately fell in love with it. I don't know if it was the order or the, the uniforms or the discipline or something was missing in my life and it instantly filled this void for me. It was like the missing puzzle piece for me. And um, from there, it just became this incredible addiction that I just couldn't let go of. When your parents uh, told you to do that, they couldn't have envisioned you doing what you're doing now. I mean, was it just to kind of get you gainfully employed and sort of bide your time until you kind of figured it out? I mean, did they just kind of want you to have a job? Exactly. I think it was more to find a job and get some direction because at the time I was living pretty freely and just going with the flow and I was kind of misled in a lot of ways of how I was approaching life. <laughs> do you, was what do you mean by that? I mean, I was, so it's like an art school and uh, I mean, I was just going out and skateboarding and hanging out with these jazz musicians all night, like in their place and playing music. And I didn't have a job and I was just figuring out weird ways to make money, to make rent. And there wasn't really any path, you know, it was just like living in the moment, which I guess isn't that awful, but I was 19 years old. Like I need well, to do I, something with my life. I guess I was just going to ask if you were still south of 20, because that that doesn't that sounds kind of awesome to me in a way. Yeah. Um, what kind of artist did you think you were maybe going to be? Um, I liked oil painting. I mean, at the time I was younger, I loved Salvador Dali. So I liked abstract and kind of surrealist thing. And I was probably emulating him a lot in my paintings at the time. Um, but I also played music. I was very poor drummer and I DJed and stuff and hung out with these uh, musicians a lot. Um, kind of anything that was creative, I, I really liked doing, uh, whether that's a project, painting, making music, even with school, if it's a project, I really love that. But besides that, I didn't really have any, any uh, discipline, we'd say. And when you look back, do you feel like you had any, do you feel like you left any talent on the, on the field in any of those areas? Or do you think, do you think you could have had a career like that if you had come back to it maybe a third time when you were a little yeah. more disciplined? Maybe, maybe for a third time. I mean, I dabble now just as more like a um, creative release and kind of like therapy, if you will, just like a good way to veg out. Um, but I think this was kind of my calling. This was the the medium I needed to use. It was really what mattered to me. And I think I realized a lot more. It wasn't really about the creation. It was about the the effect, like having on guests, like seeing that instant gratification from people, uh, making them happy, um, and just providing like an exceptional experience or doing something with my hands that took someone out. And this kind of um, experience is really amazing. I don't know. I never got that out of the other forms. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so. I have to ask you about something before we move on, because actually I just dropped it. We're recording this on the 17th of July. I just dropped an episode today with Ryan Bartlow of, uh, of Ernesto's restaurant here in New York City. And he's the latest example. But up until about a year ago, I did not realize this was a thing amongst so many future cooks and chefs. You mentioned skateboarding a second ago. <laughs> I, I discovered a concentration of it in Chicago. Uh, you're from New Jersey, yeah. but there are a lot of people who became professional cooks, professional chefs, who loved skateboarding as kids. This is a this is a thing. Yeah, 
think it, I think it really is. Um, can you just for yourself, what, what connections, when I say that, what connections do you make? Cause I'm, I'm basically trying to make up for lost time in my understanding of this. Cause I, I always knew there were a lot of musicians, who, you know, like I yeah. know, especially a lot of guitarists and drummers. I knew weird stuff. Like there was a lot of kind of closet pyros, pyromaniacs who be, you know, a lot of people yeah. who become chefs like used to like to light fires in the woods near their home or set off yeah. fireworks. Right. This is the thing. I didn't know about the skateboarding. Yeah, uh, for me personally, I think it's the the individual discovery of like your own confidence that you can build over time. And I think that was really important. It's something I picked up that was kind of this counterculture thing that wasn't really accepted by a lot of people. You know, teachers kind of were like, get away, you're a punk or whatever. But it was this thing you would do day in, day out, and you would keep trying and trying. You'd fall, you would get hurt, you would scrape your knees. It built a lot of grit and it's... And it's something that you you worked hard at and you saw results. You you became better. You became proud of yourself. Your your peers were cheering you on. Um, you all supported each other. And I think the coolest part about that was like the community of skateboarding I grew up in is so diverse. Like every walk of life was out there riding. And as long as you were you were down, you were you were in the club. You know what I mean? It wasn't judgmental any any way outside of that. And Universal think, acceptance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it felt well, great. this is. Everything you just said is analogous to not to be too precious about it, but it's analogous to kitchen life Absolutely. from the repetitive action to it paying off um, to everybody basically being accepted. Right. If you can pull your weight, if you have the skills. Exactly. Nobody really cares about anything else. And that's got to be why maybe it was so attractive. Right. It was very similar. Um, and there's a little bit of that self-abuse that needs to get there you know you have to work hard you have to you might really get hurt you might, right. you might get hurt you might get burnt you it, know what I mean? right these aren't like horrible acts of abuse but they're little things little scars but over time you get better and better and better and those don't happen as often right right and the ones that did i'm assuming like the like certain burns they're like badges of honor yeah. right they're sort of souvenirs of your education they're icebreakers always <laughs> on the line you're like someone starts talking about their burn and then they're yeah. like you see this one I got you? Right. This is 1998. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. So not coming from a culinary or culinarily oriented family, right? Uh, when you decide you want to pursue cooking, how do you go about educating your own palate, your own sense of taste, your own sense of just like what you like and maybe want to do like how did you get up to speed i mean you're of a generation where people grow up wanting to be chefs right they've seen people on television you know it's different from a generation or two earlier yeah but that wasn't you right so how do you get up to speed on the world that you decide you're gonna enter yeah so catching up with that i guess i'm a bit privileged in that way with going to work for my uncle he had this ridiculous cookbook collection like amazing like every book like every one of charlie trotter's books every art culinaire like everything came out and he had that over this mantle over the fireplace in his home and so it um, wasn't just a job he, this was a person his work was a personal passion yeah, it was super like when he was young i mean he talks about flying out to go eat at chez panisse and like experience alice waters because he loved her books and everything so um he was a huge inspiration in that that effect and he saw that early on too and would like take me to taste interesting things or be like oh have you had peking duck try this oh have you had poison sauce try this oh let's i've got this new ribeye i'm gonna cook this i mean these are very meat-centric things which are ironic <laughs> different from yeah. what i'm doing now yes. but i mean that's what 
built my interest and it was like just explosions of flavor and reading these books and seeing things I never imagined would be food, right? Like these sauce names that I've never heard of or techniques or just preparations of different game birds that, you know, I'd see my family hunt, but never seen them prepared that way at all. Um, So that was so exciting. And I just felt like it was this whole world that I'd never seen before and I could tap into. And it just felt like I was being like plugged in, like in the matrix and all this information was being downloaded into my head. Uh, It's incredible. So it wasn't daunting to you. This was all something to be learned about mastered conquered yeah yeah explored. 100%. yeah like i just wanted to push every day and be the best like that's that's the goal i guess do you remember any particular chefs uh or restaurants you read about or cookbooks that resonated or something you just mentioned a couple of things you tasted but yeah. do you remember any things that particularly caught your imagination at that formative time yeah it was he had the Charlie Trotter set. And I think at that time, that was some of the most whimsical cooking you'd maybe see. And I remember pulling down some of those books and seeing like this duck preparation. I forget everything that was with it at that time, but I was just like, this is amazing. Like there was confit in the dish and there was a roasted breast. And I was just like, what is all, what are all these words? What is this? It looks beautiful. There was like microgreens and stuff. on And I remember I went to a butcher like two days later and bought a frozen duck. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to make this. And how'd that turn out? It turned out awful. (laughs) I was a pastry cook at that time. I had very little knife skills. And I remember my uncle had come home just in the nick of time. I had a pizza box out instead of a cutting board, a frozen duck and this giant like Wustoff knife and I was going to try to carve a frozen duck. Um, it was pretty ridiculous. And he paused and he was like, we're going to put that in the fridge. We're going to find out how to do this correctly. And uh, then he showed me, we went step by step through the recipe and prepared it like in the next two days. And mm-hmm. that was really incredible. Um, that was definitely one of the first that really hooked me out of his collection. And then there's the like classics, like the French laundry, seeing food prepared like that for the first time. I mean, really was game changing for me, for sure. So how do you, when you make the decision, you know, to at least as far as you knew at the time, commit to the life, right? Commit to this as a profession. How do you start? I mean, you're at, a, you're at the Mohegan Sun <laughs> in Connecticut. You go on, I'll probably have mentioned this in the intro, but you go on to work in, you know, for some huge names, huge. Yeah. Um, how did you set off on that course? Like, what were, what were, what were, what were, sorry, what was your first step or two? Uh, and how did you decide on those? Yeah. Um, I wanted, I wanted to be like those chefs that were in those books. I wanted to cook that food at least. I wanted to experience it, whether I was going to like it or not. I just knew I needed to do that. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't there at the Mohican Sun. And my uncle's been a great mentor over the years and kind of shoved me away. It's like, you've only been doing pastry. It's time for you to go to try to go to culinary school. Uh, so we went to this little culinary school back in New Jersey. I did uh, two semesters and then they send you out on your externship. I started working for some chefs there that all come from Philadelphia. Uh, working for like Lebec Finn and Betri and stuff like that. And they were all showing me all this cool stuff. Meanwhile, we're just like this fish house, you know, on the water. But they were showing me all these unique things. So I went back to school and said, they're paying me to teach me what you're teaching me. So I dropped out again. <laughs> and uh, they really drove me. They were like, keep going, keep going. So um, Mohegan Sun at the time had a Todd English restaurant opening. And I asked my uncle if I could go work there. And they interviewed me and said I could go there. I worked there for about a year and then um, 
Then the New York Times article came out that Gordon Ramsay was opening here in New York. At the London at Hotel. At the London Hotel. Yeah. And I saw that article and they were all like had white hats on and blue aprons. And I knew I needed to go there. So <laughs> that was it. I, uh, it's cliche, but I took everything I had. I had a duffel bag. I had my last paycheck at that time, which came out without after taxes, was about $300. So I had that and I uh, slept on a friend's couch in Queens and, and just staged until I got a job. Did you have the stage lined up before you came here? Yeah, I did. You did. Yeah. And was Marcus, we're sitting here at Coleman, <laughs> which, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, they're, they're not open for lunch today, which is why it's quiet. Yeah. But, um, you know, you, you lined up the location. And when I heard it was Coleman, I was like, oh, well, you know, and I wrote to Marcus and I said, I I'm sorry, you know, if I'd known he was going to ask you, I would have asked you. And yeah. he said, no, 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 Rob used to cook with me yeah uh he's he said he's a really good cook and i didn't i didn't realize that um what was okay as, be as honest as you want to be mm -hmm. uh and this has nothing to do with marcus glocker but that kitchen is notorious in new york city for being unbelievably demanding and intense yeah it absolutely was. I think a lot of me has blocked that out over the years, but I, I think it's what I needed. You know, even till that point, I was developing the love and the passion for the career. In a lot of ways, I think I was like playing chef, but that made me have to like actually be a chef, be a cook, be focused, or I wasn't going to survive in that kitchen. Um, yeah, it was hard. Like it challenged me beyond ways I could ever believe, but I saw that progress and kind of cycles back to that skateboard thing. Like I was getting bruised up. I was getting hurt, um, but I was learning so much and I was I was doing good. And the team was like seeing that and I was moving around in the kitchen and it just felt amazing. Um, but it was extremely demanding. I remember working the canapé station. You have to put these the brioche up for the foie gras dish. And if you put it on the plate and there's the slightest crumb on it, you'd just get annihilated. So you'd be checking for all these little crumbs on the plate every night. And just like the intensity and timing of that kitchen was like was the most precision stuff yeah. I'd ever done. Yeah. And the hours, right? How many hours a night did you sleep when you worked there? Well, it is New York too, and I was a young <laughs> cook. But I'd say about three to four hours. I yeah. Guess, yeah. 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 Anyway, I was just curious. Yeah. I mean, I know people who, I mean, I know one, I have one friend who, who worked there who, I mean, is a chef owner now, would never do this anywhere. He just called in one day and said, I can't yeah. come back. I'm sorry. I'm, d I'm done. I'm cooked. Yeah. I think there is like a sustainability level of that. Like how long can you actually do it for? And you need to know when to get out of that intensity so you can recover and then improve. Right. Just like right. working a muscle in a way. It's just but, you can't overdo it. But you feel like it was a confirmation that you really wanted to do this. It was a test of how, how uh, much you could push yourself. Like you yeah. found it to be a really, um, uh, well, move the ball forward in your career. Sounds like. Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, I know for an instance from that kitchen, there was a story that I definitely knew I was in it for good. I'd moved finally to lunch entremet and uh, the night before I was helped cleaning up and I was going to be working lunch the next day. And I took all the squeeze bottles to the dish pit and um, which I wasn't supposed to do. And the next morning we were setting up and they're like, where are the squeeze bottles? And I was like, I have I have no idea. And I'm looking everywhere in the kitchen. I'm asking dishwashers. I'm trying to ask cooks over in the maze kitchen. And they're like, telling me to screw off. The service is going to start soon. And I'm like, I don't want to lose this job. So I just booked it out of the kitchen. I ran all the way to JB Prince. 
<laughs> took the elevator all the way upstairs, grabbed as many squeeze bottles I could afford at the time. And then with what cash I had left, I took a cab. I made it back just in time, filled all those squeeze bottles up. No one blinked an eye or even said anything to me, but I knew like, I'm in this, like, this is, this is for me. Like, I, I love this. And that was when I knew like, all right, we're going to keep going forward, man. Got it. So you discover that you have a healthy relationship with adrenaline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not a bad thing in your chosen profession. No. Uh, wasn't there an art supply store right around on 57th Street back then? Yeah. I, I think there was a pearl paint on. You could have gone there. a lot better. Yeah. You could have just walked up there. Okay. Um, so is it from there that you go to Trotter? Yeah. So my now wife, my girlfriend at the time, was moving to the West Coast. And I chose Love Over Kitchen. So we drove cross country together. Uh we were kind of thinking LA at the time. This is like 2008. Um, we didn't really find anything we liked. And through Marcus actually talked about Trotters opening up in Vegas. So um, applied for that and received the job and then was a part of the opening of that kitchen. Got it. And how long were you there? That was actually um, a lot shorter than what I thought. I thought it would have been more the tasting menu format. It was probably six months there. Um, and the chef was really understanding. I was like, I thought I'd be going into this tasting menu and it was more a la carte and they, they were okay. And they actually were like, you know, Guy Savoie is looking for cooks right now. And it, so it was like amicable. They understood what was going on. And I, I always respect that because sometimes jobs just don't work out. You know, it's like you have to do a year or not. And they were really understanding and I'm grateful for that and set me up with an interview at Guy Savoie and I took the job there. And how was that? More that was... It's more really classic. Cool. Yeah, it was definitely more classic. And it was really cool because it was so like technique driven, the restaurant, um, very classically uh, prepared. And it was super cool, too, because it was kind of like that point of the recession where so you didn't have two calmies under you anymore. It was just like you on your station and you have to figure this out. So um, I kind of lied my way into the meat position. I told him I was a great meat cook. And mind you, I just told you at Gordon Ramsay's, I made it to Entremet. I only cooked the vegetables there, um, but that's that confidence. So they put me on meat station and I talk about imposter syndrome. I mean, I would go home and just read everything I could to figure it out next day, like come in and be on roast station, making all these sauces, like game season would come around. You'd be responsible for 12 different But that's sauces. not imposter syndrome. You yeah. were an imposter. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Isn't imposter syndrome when you're actually qualified and feel like you don't belong? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's the reverse of imposter syndrome, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. Right. I was just confidence syndrome. Confidence syndrome. <laughs> qualified syndrome. We are going to get to this sea change that happens, no pun intended, in your yeah. career. What happens between um, that gig and Hazel Restaurant? A couple things. I went. I went to Chicago um, for about a year and a half. And went and worked with Laurent Gras at uh, L2L, which was a really, really incredible and tough kitchen to work in. Learned a lot about organization, made some amazing friends that I have to this day. Um, and then I got to this point where I'd kind of been doing this really heavy focused, high pressure thing. And um, there was an offer to come back to New York. And there was a Todd English of all people I'd worked for before was like, come do this or whatever. And I moved back to New York briefly. For olives? No, it was for that crossbar thing that was in the limelight. Oh my gosh. They, they turned that church yeah. into like yeah, this yeah, restaurant yeah. thing or whatever. And that was a 
it's a really interesting experience and um we'll leave it at that and <laughs> then uh shortly after that my wife told me that we'd be expecting soon so it's like oh this is so crazy got to try to get one more restaurant in and uh lebec finn was reopening under some new people in philadelphia i took that position i just was like i need to cook uh real and uh took a line cook position and then like a few weeks i was promoted to executive sous chef I did that for a bit and then we uh arrived in dc to have our, our first child uh, we had good friends that had worked with in past kitchens who had settled down had families there the restaurant scene looked really cool in the city. I locked up with Neighborhood Restaurant Group, was working at one of their restaurants and kind of became this adjunct chef for them where I bounced around different properties while we were going to develop Hazel together. And then after a few years of that, we, we finally got to the point of opening Hazel and and that was a really incredible restaurant. That was named for your grandmother? Yeah, it was named after my, my grandmother, Hazel. Yeah. So wh what was the food like there? And at that point in time, you know, we're going to get we're, we're inching closer to the, the, the conversion. But at that point in time, wh what did you think that represented in terms of where you were headed? You know, that's a big deal when yeah. you get your own restaurant for the first time. It's your menu that, a you know, family namesake, you know, on the awning. Yeah. But tell us just a little about what that was food wise and what you thought it kind of summed up about what you were looking to do yeah. on the plate. With Hazel, it was like this kind of coming into my own. Um, there was a lot of storytelling. I think one of the main reasons why we called it Hazel is my grandmother's zucchini bread recipe that I grew up as a kid eating every summer. Uh, was on the menu, served with the foie gras mousse. Every dish kind of became like a, a story, you know? It's like telling a story with everything. We had this gnocchi bokey, which was like gnocchi and duck bokey, which kind of was like this love story between my wife and I. And this night that I tried to make gnocchi for and realized I didn't have any tomato sauce left. So I just made it with kimchi and stuff instead at the house. And um, it's all these dishes had like these little little stories to it. And there's little nuances and uh, big flavors and kind of was like this meld of some of the fine dining French technique I was doing and kind of like a real appreciation for a lot of Korean flavor profiles too. Kind of merging those together in like a fun convivial atmosphere was kind of what we we're going for, a little more laid back than anything I'd done prior. Very well received. Yes, it was, yeah. it was very busy restaurant. Yeah, what you, I'll just throw it to you and you tell me as much detail as you can, but you then had this, um, what do we say, a culinary slash dietary shift in your life? Yeah. Well, first of all, define it for us, if you would, and then what brought it about? I had this kind of personal awakening towards how I was operating as a chef, like what I was cooking, how I was cooking it, and kind of what I was consuming myself. And I don't know if it's just with age or having children or whatever, I started really thinking more forward and what I was contributing. So I kind of cold turkey went vegetarian and decided that's what I wanted to cook uh, to be more sustainable, uh, which made it hard because Hazel's really known for a lot of its meat courses. Like I talked earlier, my uncle teached me how to make the duck. And then we had this Peking duck dinner for two on a lazy Susan at the restaurant. We had ribs and tartare and all these things. And now I was like shifting everything, like pretty much throwing out everything I'd worked and built up in a repertoire to kind of cook differently and approach my culinary uh, career a lot differently. Was there any one thing that you can point to that kind of started you, 
you know, like that was the thread that you started pulling on. Like, had you just done so much butchery that it started to like skeeve you? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> what? I mean, this is a time we are living yeah. in. A, I mean, a lot of people are going, you know, everything free, right? People are going zero proof drinks. People are going vegetarian and vegan. Uh, even people, people are just doing this stuff because they feel better. You know, there's not even necessarily a huge ethos to it yeah. for everybody. Yeah. For a lot of people, there is. But do you have any recollection of what's, I mean, that's such a big change to make as an adult. I think there's like a couple, couple things kind of compiled in a, a strange way. I think Hazel was such a busy restaurant that I did see a lot of what we're talking about and trying to keep up with those demands in a very ethical way is hard. Like, can the farm really keep up with the amount that we're doing? And it turns out it can't. And so we have to buy from other places that I don't really know about and what goes on there. And around that time, the movie Okja came out. And I don't know if you've seen that. The movie which? Okja. It's with the like fake future and they grow these like pig-like animals and they're saying that they're pets, but they're growing them for food for people. And it's just like kind of this pita light movie, if you will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, and it was kind of like, oh, that's kind of messed up. And then I had this really weird nightmare where I was hiking with my kids and she fell and I went to help her and her broken leg was like a broken chicken thigh. And I was like, that's really weird. Wow. It's <laughs> like, I don't think I can eat meat now. And uh, I don't know, it's just like in the environmental stuff that I was reading about, you know, I'd read Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma and stuff in the past. And I think it was just this huge collection of things. And it finally became like, boom, you need to make some, you need to make a difference. And that's kind of how it happened. You leave Hazel. We should say you mentioned neighborhood restaurant group. It wasn't a neighborhood restaurant group. That is the name of the restaurant group. Correct. Yeah. Um, did did the people there think like what the hell? Like did it seem abrupt to people around you at the time? Did it, did they question it? Absolutely. Did they try to talk you off out of it? Did they think you were throwing everything away? Did they think you'd lost your mind? Like what did what did people make of this decision? A lot of people felt that way. Um, I think the restaurant group was taken a little blindsided by it a bit. I think even my wife was like, what are you, what are you doing? We got a good thing here. We got two kids. <laughs> what are you doing? But I just knew it was the right thing. Even some of my peers were like, good luck with that. You know, things like, of that nature, you know, not as supportive as I thought it would be because I felt like I was doing this really incredible thing. I was going to start thinking about restaurants moving towards the future and what we can do as chefs to, to make this a better place. Because I love restaurants. I know you love restaurants. I want to go dine at them five, ten years from now. So what little changes can we start implementing now so it's not this huge shift of responsibility we have to take on? And I saw that, but not everyone else did. Most people who listen to the serve industry in the industry, I for anyone out there who isn't, or maybe people who work in, I don't know, the Bay Area, where I'm sure it's better, you know what I mean? Even in a relatively evolved city like New York, I don't know if people outside the industry, and I still see it today, understand the amount of waste behind the scenes in a restaurant. I mean, stuff that we all do at home, a lot of restaurants which operate obviously, yes. they're 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 using exponentially more stuff, right? I'm talking about glass water bottles in the garbage with everything else. That is normal. <laughs> yeah. That's normal in a lot of restaurant kitchens. I'm talking about the amount of stuff when you're R&Ding a new dish, the amount of product, some of it, you know, animals, right? 
that goes exactly. in the garbage. It It is astounding. So I can imagine for someone in the industry having this epiphany, I don't, that's not an overstatement, right? That you had. No, it uh, felt like one for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, I can imagine the feeling of that once that light goes off in your head, I could imagine the effect of it being, you know, several times what it might be for someone who's not in the industry. Cause you're again, I mean, just the stuff that, pe- that customers don't eat. You know, which in this country is probably as bad as it get. You know, gets anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. the the food that goes back, and you know, you you live in a New York or a DC or a Philly, and you go to fancy restaurants, and the por- portions aren't necessarily that huge. But in most of this country, people equate quantity with value and quality. They're looking for quantity. The the mm-hmm. portion sizes are nuts, and half of a meal gets thrown away routinely. Leaving with the the takeaway bag is like a badge of honor. It seems like, like, look, we've got snacks for later. Yeah, it's right. Like, and they probably don't get to it. They get yeah. busy and it sits in the fridge and then they're like, yeah. it's four days old. They just throw it in the trash. Yeah. Okay. You decide to make this change. Um, this leads to your current restaurant, which has been very successful. Oyster, oyster. Well, first of all, I'll let you do it, but why don't you, cause it is, it's with the exception of oysters, <laughs> the name refers to two types of oysters, right? Correct. Oyster mushrooms and then oysters, yes. right? With the exception of the bivalves, they're bivalves, right? Or are they mul- Yeah. Okay. With the exception of the bivalve kind, it, it is a vegetarian restaurant. Correct. Why the exception and uh, how do oysters figure into this worldview? Oyster, oyster, like you said, um, vegetarian. We like to say that currently the menu just was summer with everything we have. It just happens to be vegan just because we don't really need to rely on butter or things to bring out the flavor because the vegetables are just so vibrant. And then the oysters, we, we, we accept that one because we're focused on sustainability, number one, and we're in the Chesapeake and the revival of those wild oyster beds is really important to rebuild those reefs, just like the Billion Oyster Project here in New York for cleaning the waters and kind of protecting us from storm damage and all the ecosystem that it, it revives. It just seems very essential that we work with really good local oyster farmers who are part of their conservation efforts to put oysters back naturally into the reefs and rebuild that ecosystem because we need that as much to contribute to the land that we want to have, right? So it's like I always say, if we open this restaurant in Minnesota, it would not be oyster oyster. It'd be just probably carrot carrot or something like that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have the oysters because it right. doesn't really tell the story of where we are in, in terms of our sustainability. And then the oyster mushroom is the other oyster for the restaurant. And that's like kind of our symbolism, our yin and yang, our little ethos that we look up to because uh, mushrooms are the fruit of mycelium, which is like this amazing network under the soil of all this biology that's happening there. And it just really is part of what we want out of the world. We want healthy vegetables coming from the land and great waterways for for oysters and other life out there. I looked at your website, getting ready to talk to you. The menu is not a menu on the website. The menu is the core ingredients of the moment that we're in, in the calendar, right? Correct. You, you kohlrabi and you list all these things and then you, you, what you, you change it up on the regular based on what's, what's coming in, what you get on, what's what you have on the day, what looks best on the day. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's and it's a tasting menu. Yeah. It's a tasting menu. Um, it's for two reasons. Uh, one is, yeah, things are going to change and we don't want a guest because majority of the time our guests are, making this reservation two, three months out ahead of time and they get really hooked on that one dish. We all know that you've been 
get psyched for a restaurant. You're reading that menu. You're like, oh, that halibut dish looks great. And then you get there and it's, it's not on the menu anymore. And now you yeah. have to go for like your second favorite or whatever. And uh, kind of avoid that. Um, also, it is constantly changing. And then it's we're talking about vegetables. And everyone has these horrible experiences as a child or growing up with vegetables. And I don't want you to read a menu and be like, oh, I hate carrots or I hate this ingredient. I'm not looking forward to it. So we want that element of surprise to happen and hopefully change your your mind about what, what vegetables you like and whatnot. Hopefully we're doing it uh, a good way in a process that's you know, enticing. Does the dining population of D.C. and people visiting D.C. in 2023, does does all of that go down pretty smoothly? Like people don't call. Do people call up trying to like, well, OK, but what's the menu? Like, do they try to pry it out of you ever? Are they ever resistant to it? How How hard a sell is it at this point in our development as a restaurant going public? I think what happened in 2020 has helped us a lot that didn't happen, I think this would be way harder. I think a lot of things we were able to develop over that time. We should um, say you were you were on the launch pad. We were. You we were, were about <laughs> to open in March of 20. Yep. And then Mayor's stuff, shut down stuff happened. All indoor dining. Yeah. And then yeah. we had to reassess everything. We were right. Do. Right. <laughs> we make a restaurant happen, um, which is fun because we didn't do our menu. We made pizza and gave people veggie pizzas for like did a I, year did i hear right somewhere and and oyster mushroom cheesesteaks yeah we did mushroom cheesesteaks yeah that a guest will have an entire menu with us say how much they loved it thank everyone and then they'll say just bring back the cheesesteaks <laughs> <laughs> like, we won right <laughs> right we've right. been working all day right no but they, they were very good and it was fun and there was a lot of creativity during that time but i think just building that that sense of community and just feeding like with comforting things in DC for we build a lot of trust. So I don't think there's as much pushback at all. I think we just kind of built that reputation with our with our neighborhood and other DC uh, diners just by being open and doing that and putting a lot of love and passion into it every day. I think kind of built that trust for us. I've heard you mention uh, the restaurant in Copenhagen, Raleigh. Mm-hmm. As as kind of a north star of sorts, uh, you know, when I was researching you before this interview, and and sadly they closed. But I, the thing I was immediately reminded of was uh, the restaurant Amas, yeah, that Matt Orlando had, which I mean, I interviewed him once, and he was telling me about all not just the, not just their food practices. But how much stuff got, what do we say now? Upcycled. Upcycled, He didn't, I don't think he used that term, but how much stuff got repurposed, Mm -hmm. right? From like supplies, plastics, um, uh, everything, everything that they could. This seems to also apply to what you do, right? No single use plastic products, correct? Correct. So we do use still some plastics like your Cambro containers and whatnot, but that's where we kind of draw the line. So there's no plastic wrap. We don't wrap things up at the end of the night. We've eliminated deli containers from the restaurant um, because they are great. They are convenient, but they do degrade pretty quickly. Um, they do break. And we know that what we put in recycling doesn't actually get recycled. It just ends up in an ocean or a landfill. I think it's 10% of what we put in the recycling bin actually goes to the recycling facility. And Wait. then only 10% of that that makes it to the recycling facility becomes recycled. Why? I don't know this. We we don't really recycle correctly. Um, If there's any food residue or whatnot on a container or you finish that smoothie and it still has all that protein stuff caked in there and you throw it in, they don't wash it. They don't have the facility to wash every single bottle and put that through. So things need to be clean. Um, These materials aren't they're 
they are recyclable when properly maintained and cleaned and finished and all that. But as consumers, we're not, it's a lot left on us to do that. And then the blame becomes part of our fault, but it's really just all the packaging. Uh, so we've eliminated that. Um, we, this past year, we eliminated all like smaller format single use. So like no cans of beer, uh, small bottles. We don't do any bottled water at the restaurant, things like that. So beer's only on tap and like, you know, classic 750s of wine. That's that's all we've done. Uh, we recently saw a very cool video from the restaurant Silo who bought this thing to process the wine bottles and turn those into plates. Um, I think it's great having social media and things like this to spread it. We're not trying to be novel and be gatekeepers of this information. So we, uh, we're we working to get one of those containers, one of those machines too, to uh, turn our wine bottles into plates as well eventually. So you can do that in-house with this machine? We're gonna work with a potter that uh, we work with to make plates for a restaurant that has a facility that can pick our, uh, our situation up. Uh, we do that with our candles, our votives for the table. We reuse our oyster shells. Uh, they become the actual container for the candle. And we do a blend of uh, beeswax from one of our local farmers, honey, and our cooking oil that's left over from like deep frying our little canapé. We blend that and we set that to be our wax for our candles on our table. Um, try to think of another use for everything. Everything needs a second life, a third life through these materials. I mean, even the packaging that the wine bottles come in. This is really lovely cardboard that has these little holes that, guess what? They're perfect for holding an oyster while you're pouring wax into it. So we just like reuse 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 it's kind of becomes like this little clever scrappy way to use things in the restaurant but um in the long run it pays off it's great and you're ready for the ai apocalypse that's coming mm -hmm. like you Absolutely. you're going to be really resourceful in the uh terminator landscape yeah, we're all watched, headed towards i watch t2 like three <laughs> times a day just to get prepared <laughs> okay what what does this do uh, without getting? I'm not trying to pry. I don't yeah. I don't want to be specific. I don't I'm not asking you for numbers, right? But which way does this cut? Bottom line, does 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 using all this stuff in the way you are, does it represent a savings ultimately, or does it? Um, you know, and I'm talking about factoring in like the time that it takes to have people you know, make use of all this stuff in, in a way that it wasn't intended for originally, right? Right. In addition to the, the actual dollars and cents, right? But is it, is it a push? Do you break, is it more or less a non-factor? Do you think you save money ultimately? Or does it, is there a cost? I think there's, there's definitely a saving and we've seen it, like just not having to go packaging that sits there or having to rebuy another sleeve of deli containers every week or excessive use of paper towels um, those things do add up. There are those little things, but by the day, by the week, by the year, that's thousands and thousands of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And when we talk about like savings and staff having to do that, but then there's like little side tasks that they're no longer doing, right? Like no one's stocking the dry goods of a bunch of plastic and paper materials, right? Now that normal payroll is being applied to doing something a little more beneficial for the restaurant. Um, and kind of in the climate where you hear about like inflation all the time and food costs, I mean, working with just really just our own community of farmers and purveyors, just very tight knit group. We, we don't really see the impacts of a lot of the other food world seeing on increase on food and shortages. I mean, like we're flex, we're a very flexible restaurant. Like we talked about with the menu too. We have to be ready to, to, to duck out when an ingredient goes out of season, we have to come up with something very quick. We have to be mindful of that. So we're ready for those changes at all times. 
I think it is, honestly, sustainability seems like it's going to be this expensive thing, but it actually does save a lot of money in the end. Mm -hmm. That's good to hear. I mean, for bottom line oriented people who are maybe hearing this and like wondering, I'm curious about the mindset. Most people I know who do uh, have made a decision to do something along the lines of what you're doing, to do it, well, first and foremost, the peace of mind, right? How you feel about yourself at the end of a day, at the end of a week, as you're going through your day, you know, and seeing the product of all this thinking, right, and commitment. But this is far from the norm. And I'm just wondering, what's your attitude toward just kind of peers in the industry to the to the world at large? You know, what you're doing is so, at the moment, it may change, right? But again, even in even in you know places that think of themselves as very progressive, forward-looking, uh, responsible cities, right? Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, you're like in a very small minority of operators who do anything even remotely close to what you're doing, right? Yeah. Um, does it bum you out? Uh, does it? Uh, drive you to kind of try to spread the gospel and 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 speak to you know other owner operators like what what what's your kind of mindset right now in that regard in terms of how you how you reckon the rest i mean honestly i mean to me the rest of society yeah no i mean it is it's an interesting way to to think about and a great question um it's a little difficult sometimes because I know as an as an individual as a restaurant, we're probably not contributing to any answer. Like as like just our efforts as so one your, restaurant. And your it, restaurant's and not going to save the world. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, on its own. And um, there's that reality of it. But there's the point that we inspire, try to inspire everyone who comes in. That'd be a guest. Whether they come in, they say, wow, I didn't know a vegetarian meal that could be this good. And they're still a meat eater. That's that's totally fine. But maybe next time they go to the restaurant, they choose the vegetable appetizer over the meat appetizer. And then that's a little bit of progress. Right. And if that catches on, then it's like that classic, you know, a drop of rain becomes a river. Right. Like that's kind of the philosophy there. And it's been just to stay humble and keep our heads down and work really hard. And I think these accolades that we've received prove that that work matters. And I I hope that that inspires other chefs. Um, you know, because I, I think genuinely all chefs really care about those things. They all get excited when they go to the farmer's market and pick out. They love working with that one farmer who brings in a whole hog or whatever. Like we they really love that. And it's just like, OK, now dial that down and you have to expand that to every process in the restaurant. Like just really be thoughtful about what you're doing. Um, and it, it's there's a lot of variables in restaurants that are hard and stressful, but I feel like when you start thinking this way, you slowly chip away at them. It's a little hard in the beginning, you know? It's like you're stumbling before you can run, you know? It's like a baby in a way, a toddler getting there. But um, if you stick with it, it becomes so much easier. Like, I really don't think this restaurant's stressful or hard. You just adapt those muscles, you adapt the mindset. And then once that's in place, it becomes very intuitive, you know? I don't find it to be grueling or hard and i think that's what keeps me going because it could be doom and gloom and depressing and say well we're not really going to fix anything ourselves but 
we got to do it to inspire others. We, we have to do it to just change a few people's minds. And I mean, our entire staff is so dedicated for whatever reason it is that they're there, you know, whether they're they're vegan or they care about sustainability and they want to run a restaurant that's more sustainable in the future or they love wines that are being responsible. And that's the type of purveyors they want to work with and producers. I think that's that's what matters. And that's the next generation. And, and those are the ones that are really going to make the change. Right. Like hopefully this restaurant is just something that helps, you know, spark the next next movement, like whether we're on top or not, that's whatever. We just hope that we spark that next generation to really make a change. It's like, the, you know, there's this great line. I want to say Brian Eno said I can't remember who said it. I think that's who it was about the Velvet Underground. You know, they like their, their first album only sold X number of copies. But everyone who bought it started a band, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it's that kind of mindset, right? Like exactly. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. I yeah. love that. You mentioned your team, right? Mm -hmm. uh, does did, I mean does this again? I'm just curious in like the byproduct, physical and spiritual, emotional. Do, do you feel like does it draw um, a fairly uh, cohesive team the the way you operate? Like do you feel like you have less maybe drama than the average restaurant behind the scenes? Do you feel like you know, you, people function as a as a team more cohesively, yeah. or is that just kind of this dumb Pollyannish thought? No, I, I think it is there. It is. It's incredible, actually. I think we we've drawn in such like minded but such unique individuals in that that restaurant, and they're all just so into it, uh, always trying to contribute to how we could do things a little bit better. And I think the fact that they feel they're really a part of something, and that their efforts are they're valued and, and they they know they kind of need to be a part of it for the restaurant to even operate is part of the success there. And we draw in a, like a very chill team, like they all get along very well. It's I would agree. It's pretty no drama, especially in the kitchen. It's just like everyone gets along. Everyone like wants to go hang out. And, you know, we're in a different time, too. Like when I was coming up, you'd go to a bar all night afterwards and they're they're going home and relaxing and then coming in the next day fresh and ready to take on the day. And it's like part of why we built the restaurant we did, too, is we talk about being like really caring for the earth and the environment. But there's a strong, holistic approach to how we like take care of our team and as a whole. But like for me, I really wanted cooks to be like seen and paid well and feel like their efforts are worth it. Um, where like for years, you know, you'd be in the kitchen, you'd work all night, do this crazy undercover night, get your ass kicked. And then the server walks out with like $500 and you're like, I made my $90 shift pay. <laughs> right, like, right. It's just, you know, it's not balanced. So we want to have that balance. So, you know, it's our cooks. If we're on a good night cleaning up, they're out by 1030. Like that's awesome. Like, yeah. You can have a life. It's um, so funny to me what you just said about the, um, you know, the, the, the young, the young generation of cooks coming up. You know, I have a book coming out this fall and the subject of the book, the restaurant sadly closed. It was wherewithal restaurant in Chicago. And I have a line in there about when they, when they all show up on Tuesday, the restaurant was closed Sunday, and Monday, and they show up on Tuesday for the menu meeting. Cause they change the menu weekly. And that's the first thing they do on Tuesday. And I have a whole paragraph about like, this is not what cooks coming in after a weekend looked like 25 years ago. Like they're pink cheeked. They have a, you know, they have a skip in their step. Yeah. They all have water bottles. Uh -huh. um, I think I said something like, you know, and it wouldn't be at all uh, incongruous if one or two of them had like a yoga mat under their arm. Like this is not how people showed up 25 years no. ago. Yeah. You know, which I mean, it's, 
those were fun times, but this is obviously it's, I mean, it's healthier. It's, it's, you're better set up for the week. It's, you know, it's good. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's, especially with what we're trying to do, it it gives me a lot of hope and it's exciting to see that. And, uh, and I think there'll be like a longer longevity for them, you know, as a, as a cook coming up, I had no idea what you're supposed to do. You know, you just work until the wheels fall off basically. Right. And I think they can be more strategic how they do things and, and set themselves up for a longer, healthier career. And I think that's really important. Do you do any, um, uh, I don't mean this word to sound as dramatic as, as it does, but like, do you do any speechifying about, um, you know, sustainability and some of the practices you have? Do you, do you ever pull, colleagues aside and 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 you know say hey can i bend your ear for 10 15 minutes like do you try to kind of proselytize uh about what you're doing or do you just kind of let it speak for itself and just trust that event like you know you said like the people who've worked for you will go on and and start implementing it or or do you do something more proactive like uh, within the restaurant or no 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 beyond. beyond yeah yeah i mean there is times you know i did a pop-up at a friend's restaurant about a month ago and i was like where's your compost containers you know like jokingly but then he called me two days ago and said who who do you use for compost again so it's it's and you're like like yes yeah i mean i think those are important small victories and just to tell them that it's like it's it's not as hard to do as you think it is right and um, it's about to become the law in new york city did you hear about that super cool they're giving people two years that's good yeah yeah well, someone complained about it to me the other day, and I said, "Well, you know, there is a percentage of the population who has to find out what what that is." Yeah, there they is. don't. They heard the word, but they don't know what it is. Yeah, and the, the, what you can put in the compost, you'd be amazed. You yep. know, like obviously we don't have it at the restaurant, but fish bones, meat bone, everything can go in there, yeah, right? Eggshells, yeah. yeah, cardboard paper, whatever. You know, not giant boxes but yeah I mean, if it's all going to a commercial composting, there's so much that can go in there that's actually biodegradable become soil again which is great rather than just a piled up landfill creating methane like it's like silly um but yeah it's just getting around that and it's easy to get into that loophole too where it's like okay well i'll buy compostable tasting spoons and piping bags and whatever but it's like is that really the answer too you know it's like one thing we do is we just buy like either from you can buy like nice cheap stainless steel spoons you can get like a hundred of them for ten dollars like it's going to last forever. Just use those. We don't need to throw a plastic spoon in the trash every time we taste something. It's just those little things. It's not really much more of an investment. It's just maybe upfront, like an 18th of what you're going to spend yearly you know, mm-hmm. on plastic spoons. So, um, yeah. All right. So let's, let's wrap up by, um, let's bring it back to the food. Coming up as you did, um, not being vegetarian, right? How do you think that's informed what you do now? Uh, you know, Amanda Cohen, who most people listening probably know, has Dirt Candy Restaurant mm-hmm. here in New York, which is a vegetarian Fantastic. restaurant. Yeah. You know, but I said to her once, how do you go about, you know, uh, composing f- dishes that will be universally appealing? And she said, well, honestly, I think you have to eat meat a little bit um, to understand what most people are used to, like, looking for texture flavor on and on well you you spent a lot a lot of your life eating like that and cooking like that do you feel like that um orientation and that personal history and your palate you know having all these years of eating like that do you feel like it's just naturally led you to create like when you said people come in and they're like i didn't know a you know vegetarian 
course could be that satisfying. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of a natural place for you to get to having cooked the way you did for the first several years of your career? I would say it's a bit, it's a bit of a natural, natural thing, but it always a work in progress. I think being someone who ate that, that way for so long and cooked that way that I would go and eat vegetarian food elsewhere and be very unsatisfied. And I knew I'd made this commitment that I needed to eat that way. And I don't want to cook at home every night or <laughs> just eat at my own restaurant. Um, so for that, I had to figure out like techniques and a lot of that did contribute from working like a roast station in a restaurant and stuff. And I mean, I'd always kind of thought about vegetarianism, like as a young kid, you know, it's like a lot of punk kids were straight edge or vegan or whatever. And you kind of get into it, but there was no way to eat that way back then. And then in kitchens, it'd be very difficult because I was afraid you'd just get stuck on garmage forever. You know, they'd never let you learn these things. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. And I think it does lead to making dishes like people feel satiated when they leave. They feel like they really were harnessed and it wasn't too light. Like I'm going to need to go eat a piece of pizza now or something after the meal. And I think that's super important, especially working with this, you know, format and this kind of progress we want to see. Um, you need to make dishes that work like that. You need the meal to be well-rounded. It needs to be like wholesome. And I mean, one thing I like is like hearty, hearty dishes, right? Like I think that just growing up in a household where like big bowl pasta would be there, right? Whatever it was, it was just like, I feel great. Like this is power. And I, I want dishes to feel like that and not feel too, too light or precious. I want you to feel like you're, I mean, it's not anything out of the ordinary. I think there's, there's cultures around the world that have done fantastic job cooking vegetarian and plant-based food for forever, right? It's just yeah. now applying it to our style of eating here and especially DC and, and what ingredients we have where we're located and work with those ingredients and create a meal that's extremely satisfying and not the cliche of, I'm gonna get a tofu steak and a salad, <laughs> some kind of juice. Right, right. or what was it for years? The portobello burger. Yeah, portobello burger, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Balsamic reduction. Right, right, right. Some tomatoes on that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's something, uh, I mean, I know it's always in flux, either that was on the menu in the last week or two, or maybe that's going on the menu tomorrow, if we even know what that is yet. Um, What's what's something uh, that you've particularly, just on a personal level, that you've been particularly happy with uh, in in this season we're in right now? Yeah. Um, I think it's fun because it talks about an ingredient, uh, where we're headed, and just like, the power of the chef community is uh, a farmer last year grew this green corn he says oaxacan corn but he grew it in pennsylvania brings this corn it's beautiful it's green it's dried i've never made masa in my life but i'm like i we want to do that um and i i asked some friends i have a friend anna castro down at uh oh, yeah. madre yeah yeah um, I was like, what do I do? Just give me some tips on how to do it. And we practice and we perfected, like perfected in my terms, um, this beautiful, uh, dough with this, this, uh, green, green corn that then we fold in these lovely forward chanterelles, some of the first corn, then we stuff a squash blossom with that, steam it. Uh, and then we serve it with a bed of like shaved squash that's marinated and roasted. Um, this really lovely sauce made out of local seeds, sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds and sesame seeds. It's really rich sauce that is definitely inspired by mole, but I would never call it that because it doesn't taste like one. I don't want to give anyone the wrong idea. But then this becomes this really 
lovely, beautiful dish and we figured out how to do it and we worked with something from a farmer that grew something locally, got wonderful advice from a great chef friend and put together this dish that uh, has been a real hit on the menu. I love it. I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I'm overdue for a trip to D.C. I hope to come eat at Oyster Oyster. Please. Before the year is out. Thanks for making some time for me. I I can't believe you actually came in just for this, but thanks for making some time for me while you were on this very quick, less than 24-hour visit to New York. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It was great. And that is our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Rob Ruba for joining us and to the team at Coloman for hosting us. If you are in D.C. or visiting D.C., definitely check out Oyster Oyster. And if you are in New York City, you should definitely visit Coloman Restaurant. It's one of my favorite new restaurants, actually, of the last couple of years. I've talked about it here on the show before. Uh, Marcus is uh, a very serious chef, and his, he and his team there are turning out terrific food. And again... Our thanks to Mies, the recipe operating system for culinary professionals. Please visit getmees, G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up today. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask you to do that by telling a friend posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find the show. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to chefs.